let's get into it today. There's obviously a lot to talk about. I'm really excited. I think what Mark, how he writes, is starting to become kind of evident. Like, it's different than John, different than Matthew and Luke. Um, the stuff that he cares about, the focuses that he has, the way that he uh, brilliantly puts in words and this kind of stuff. Remember, this is Peter's eyewitness account of Jesus being told to Mark, and then he writes it down. Um, so it's pretty cool. But Jesus has been going all around the region, traveling to various areas, teaching, healing, and setting his followers up for what is about to come next. And we've, he's told them twice now, and this is from chapter 931, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. And all of this is supposed to happen in the incredible place of Jerusalem. Of all places, it's supposed to happen in Jerusalem. And now we find Jesus and his followers, and this is key information, chapter 10, verse 1, in the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, which is that area is very close to Jerusalem. So he's very close to where he said this stuff is about to go down. It's about to happen. They're in this area. Jesus' earthly days here are numbered. Okay, and he only has a little bit of time left with his followers. So it'd be wise for us to pay attention to the stuff that he's teaching his followers at the very end. This is crucial stuff uh, of unveiling of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is with his disciples. The crowd see him come running, and like a good rabbi, he stops and he starts teaching the people. Now, we're not exactly told what Jesus is teaching the people. We're not told that he's teaching the people about marriage or divorce. Like, we're not told at all that he is teaching about this and the Pharisees just jump in. What we are told about is that the Pharisees, there's verse 2, the Pharisees come up and in order to test him, ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So if you're here this morning and you're like, oh man, I really do not want to talk about divorce. Don't get angry at me. Don't get angry at Jesus. Get angry at the Pharisees. <laughs> they brought it up, okay? But it's interesting that Mark tells us that they're there to test Jesus about this question. In another translation, it says they went to trap Jesus. So why? Why now all of a sudden? Why here? Why are they bringing up divorce now? Well, remember where we are. The Judean region. Does anyone know who is the previous traveling preacher who primarily preached in this area? John the Baptist. Yes, good. So uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him or being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Okay, so as a refresher, uh, John the Baptist was beheaded brutally, because he called out Herod, if you remember this, who had married his brother's wife. His brother's wife had divorced his brother and then went to marry Herod, so Herod wanted her. She wanted him, and they did that whole thing. All right, married him instead. Now, Jesus is right back in that region. Now, if he starts calling out divorce, if he starts calling that out here, there would be grounds for the exact same fate of John the Baptist to happen to Jesus. Here they can trap Jesus and say, hey, he just called Herod uh, an adulterer. We can behead him. This is our grounds. So let's see how Jesus answers. In classic Jesus alert, he answers with a question. Verse 3 of chapter 10, he answered them, well, what did Moses command you? So a few things Jesus is doing here. First, 
what the Pharisees see as law written in stone, Jesus sees, he points out Moses. He doesn't say what's in the law. He points out the man that God worked through. So that relational connection there. Second, he's appealing to who the Pharisees see as the ultimate authority. Okay, their ultimate authority here is the law. It is the Mosaic law given from Moses. Jesus knew the Pharisees revered Moses and would know all the Mosaic law. However, most likely forgot why the law was there in the first place, what the heart of the law, the why of the law. So they said, verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. This is back to Deuteronomy 24. I want to read you that law here. It's just a few verses so you can know it in its full context. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord." That was all one sentence. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So first of all, just brutal, okay? Like it's really, really tough for us in our context to read stuff like that. Like, do you feel that? That's just, it's really, really brutal, I feel, for this poor lady. Um, and we don't have time to get into that, but it, it just, it's just hard to translate into that time. But they had real laws for divorce. But interestingly, it wasn't supposed to be that way. Jesus says, verse 5, back in chapter 10, And Jesus said to them, It's because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus makes a distinction here. There was a commandment that Moses had to give you, needed to give the people because of the hardness of heart, but all of that, falls under the initial law of the fabric of creation where God made them male and female. This law is not contractual. This is not two parties agreeing to be male and female. This was a new entity, a new creation. The combination of male and female creates this one flesh. That's how God created it. Here Jesus quotes Genesis 2 in verse 7. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. And then Jesus adds here in verse 8, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So in a nutshell, the question was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The answer is yes, there is laws that allow that, but it was never meant to be that way. Marriage was never meant to have divorce as an option, right? So as it happens often in Mark, Jesus has this public remark, but then he takes his followers privately and he speaks more plainly. So he goes more in depth. Verse 10, And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. See here, Jesus doesn't hold back. He ha Here, without saying the names of who it is, he is 100% talking about Herod and Herodias. Right, calling it out. He's calling it out as this was adultery. The, the thing is, though, he's not doing it publicly because it's not his time. Right? John the Baptist came for a purpose. John the Baptist came to call out Herod. God called him to do that. 
But for Jesus, he's come to not just call out adultery, not just call out divorce or whatever. He's came to call out the real root, the sin, this hard-heartedness that needed the law in the first place. Now, real quick, I'm not a marriage expert. Okay, I've married a few years. Um, but if you're here and divorce is part of your story, divorce has created trauma in your life because it's been done to you or done around you. Um, I just, what we see here is it was never meant to be that way. Like the reason it's so painful is because it's literally tearing apart of the fabric of how God created it to be. It was never meant to be that way. But what you need to hear this morning is not shame. It's not guilt, right? It is the very good news that Jesus sees this as a sin issue as a result of our broken world, not a you issue, okay? This is a sin issue that's just part of this brokenness that we live in. It was never meant to be this way. That's why it's so hard. Meaning this is among the very things that Jesus came to gave, give his life for washing clean those who believe and inviting them into a remaking, a new creation life. So there's always hope because through Jesus there is always grace. All right, so I want to move on. There's such an interesting transition here because we go right from the super intense thing where they're trying to trap Jesus. He's answering and it's kind of confusing. Right to verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. Okay, the hardness of heart that has produced divorce and laws about that in consequent in the laws versus the innocence and beautiful naivety of children. Literally a chapter ago, Jesus had a child in the disciples' midst in, in chapter 9, verse 37, and saying, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. And here, they're shooing children away, right? They're like, you guys are annoying, just get out of here, right? And as the disciples are annoyed at the children, Jesus is annoyed at the disciples. Verse 14, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is the standard for entrance of the kingdom of God. Trust, dependence, innocence, awe, and wonder. The exact opposites of hard-heartedness. Right? This is what it takes to see what the kingdom of God for what it is. And if you haven't picked up on this yet, Mark loves comparisons because Jesus loves comparisons. And Mark has some huge juxtapositions, big ones. Uh, we see the pendulum. Jesus teaches one thing, and then he swings the pendulum completely over and gives you something totally opposite to weigh it against. So what's the opposite of a child who has nothing really valuable in terms of possessions and completely dependent upon others? A rich, successful, self-sufficient young man. Okay, so what, what, all of a sudden, Jesus has these children coming to him saying, you need to receive the kingdom like an innocent child that has nothing to your name, and all of a sudden, a rich young man comes before him. What could he possibly want that he doesn't already have? And as people who believe they've already arrived do, he puts himself on par with who society thinks are the top dogs. And for Jewish students, young Jewish students, it would be their rabbi. He comes up to the rabbi, verse 17, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit life? Like good teacher, like their age-old pals, right? Like feigning familiarity is the first sign where he's putting on a show to raise himself above, uh, above other people. And Jesus is a bit cheeky for his response, verse 18, well, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
So for Jesus, it's like, oh, oh, you know me. You know me, do you? Okay, well, then if I'm good and God is the only one who is good, then you must also accept that I am the Christ, which means you are ready and willing to surrender to my will, not your will, <laughs> right? But Jesus teases this out. He doesn't just call him straight up. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your mo- father and mother. Same as he did with the Pharisees, what do you know to be true according to the letter of the law? The man says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, as a side note, it, and this is what I believe is to be so crucial about the Sermon on the Mount. If you guys have never read the Sermon on the Mount, write it down. Matthew 5, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Go home and read it like a hundred times, okay? It's, it's an incredible way where Matthew records where Jesus cuts to the heart of the law. There were so many laws, right? But the point of it was to turn the hearts towards God, the why behind everything. Uh, Matthew 5, I'm going to give you two examples. These are literally the first two examples of the Sermon on the Mount, and you can see what I mean. First example, Matthew 5, 21. Jesus is talking. He's giving the sermon. He says, you have all heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, so what's the conclusion? Like, don't murder. Okay, and if you don't murder, then you're not liable to judgment. But, verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. That's a lot different, right? You cannot murder and still be liable to this judgment, right? That's the first one he brings out. This is the second one. These are top two, okay? Matthew 27, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So you say, well, I haven't committed adultery, but then he blows it up, right? It makes it so much better. It gives the why behind it. So Mark, he doesn't include this in his sermon, but he's doing a similar thing. What is the letter of the law versus what was the heart for the why of the law in the first place? So this rich young man has kept all these commandments, apparently. But we'll see. Has it done its job? Has it turned his heart towards surrender to God? Verse 21 of Mark 10. And Jesus, looking at him, and I love this, loved him, kind of similar to like had compassion on him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Well, has it turned his heart? Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Hot take from me, okay? Take it or leave it. You can do all the right things and still not be following Jesus. Okay, your life can look like you are just checking off all the boxes, but your heart is not following Jesus. It reminds me of Ephesians 2, 8 real quick. It's, it, we cannot boast in the things that we are doing, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so no one may boast. So Jesus pulls his disciples aside again. He uses this as a teaching moment, right? It's going to be very hard for those who have given their heart to material and earthly treasures, what they can gain in this life. In fact, just like this young man, they are likely going to walk away disheartened and sorrowful because for them, the kingdom of God is a loss. It's bad news, right? Give up everything? That's terrible news. I don't want that. But when you count everything as loss, and you see what you can gain, it is good news. Verse 23, he says, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter 
the kingdom of God. The disciples are amazed at this. Jesus says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now I would love to like sit here and nerd out about like, well, a camel represents this and a needle represents, you know what I mean? I think the camel is the biggest animal they know. Like, I don't think they've traveled abroad. There's no book where they've seen a dinosaur or like, you know, an elephant or something. So what's the biggest thing they know and the smallest thing they know? And these, can't, these are not compatible, right? And their minds blown. The disciples see this analogy in their head. In verse 26, they said, well, then who can be saved? Verse 27, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So with God, for this camel to have still keep its camelness, but it would have to be created new. It would have to be made new for it to be able to enter into this needle. And if, if you can get your heads around that, if the disciples can, then if God can do that, then what can't he do. Similar to the rich man saying, I followed all the rules, Jesus, Peter speaks up. He's trying to make sense of all this. And he says, oh, okay, well, well, verse 28, see, we have left everything and followed you. We're not rich. We don't have wealth. So now we can enter, right? Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the end or in the age to come eternal life. Wow, so anyone who has given up their possessions for Jesus will actually inherit a hundredfold of possessions and family. Of course, this is mind-blowing for the disciples. We today, we have books and documentaries and aerial photography you can Google any information you want about where people are in the world, how many, like the population of places, you can get this. For first century Jews, there were Jews, and then there were Gentiles. You know, like that was it, right? They're, they didn't quite, they couldn't be able to tell you that. Pretty simple, right? But we get this language today. If you are in Christ, you're now spiritually connected, spiritually brothers and sisters in this great diverse family of God. And I love also how Jesus, he sneaks in a key phrase. Do you see it? with persecutions, right? It's like one of those infomercials where they're selling a product and it's, it's like, yeah, you're going to have brothers and sisters and mothers and lands and possessions in the age to come. Side effects may include persecution, you know? Like you just <laughs> have this thing of like, wait, what do he say? You know? But verse 31, he says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. See, in the kingdom of God, human value is reversed. It's not the strongest or the fittest, fittest or the wealthiest, but the least of these, the one who serves, the one who chooses to be last shall be considered first. And now Jesus, he turns his heading towards his fate, that is Jerusalem. And his disciples are starting to get anxious, seeing where they are going. Look at this, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. They see where they're going. They, they're starting to feel this and get what it is. Jesus takes the 12 inside and he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Okay, Jesus, we've heard this before now twice. You just said it a third time. But Jesus now adds some more gruesome detail. Verse 34, And they will mock him, 
and they will spit on him, and they will flog him, and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And Mark moves on, but the, the same scene in the Gospel of Luke, we're told in 1834, but they understood none of these things. But there are two who think they do. Back to Mark 10, verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they come up to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Bold thing to ask your rabbi, right? That's pretty intense. Jesus grants them, what do you want me to do for you? Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Wow, this seems very reminiscent of when they got caught talking about amongst themselves about who was the greatest disciple. You remember this? Now they're saying, Jesus, Jesus, can you pinky promise that we will be your two favorites when you enter into glory, whatever that means, right? Except they're thinking only of glory and not of the cost. Jesus knows this. Verse 38, Jesus says to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And I love their answer. Yeah, we're able. They're like, sure, bring it on, right? The cup has traditionally meant wrath, right? The baptism symbolically means death. I'm not sure they know that (laughs) at this time. Okay, Jesus goes, all right, young blood, here we go. Verse 39, Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. If you want to follow me, you will experience the cup. You will experience the baptism, the wrath and the death that I experienced, but it is only for the Father to judge your heart and for the glory that you shall receive. And of course, I love it. Verse 41, when the 10 heard it, when they heard what they said, they began to be indignant at James and John. Like, wait, they asked Jesus, what? Like betrayers, like they think they're better and greater than us. They think once they're elevated to glory, then they'll be the greatest and they can lord over us. Well, Jesus knew their thoughts. Verse 42, he calls to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Okay, so you've seen this played out. There are these rulers of these earthly kingdoms and these great ones who rules over them. But here's what I want you to know. My kingdom is different. That is not what's going to happen with you all. Verse 43, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. This is a great paradox of the kingdom of God is for people who don't love to rule, but love to serve. Verse 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is like, are you starting to see it? My kingdom is not like these other kingdoms. It is upside down kingdom where the last shall be first and the greatest shall serve. It's countercultural. It's different than anything you've ever seen on earth before. And to end this section, Mark throws in another transition, which is one of my favorite passages that we'll end with today. Verse 46, and then they came to Jericho. Okay, now you remember the story. We're not going to read it, but in the Joshua narrative uh, in the scriptures, right, there's Jericho, this impenetrable fortress that God has his people walk around and shout, and the city completely falls down and is destroyed, right? So it's been in shambles for a long, long time. 
but Herod has actually come and rebuilt part of it into this grand winter palace. It was known for its beauty and lush greenery that was all around it. And what was interesting is the the sojourners that came in from the outside land had to pass through this to go onto the road to Jerusalem. So there's kind of like that, this little bit of like, okay, you're entering Herod's kingdom, right? You're entering this, this thing that's beautiful and wonderful and going through, and then you go down to the area that is the basis for the Good Samaritan story. You're in this, from Jericho to Jerusalem is the range of the Good Samaritan story. Just like Luke 10, 30. Uh, Jesus was teaching a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. Okay, so this is that treacherous path. This is a treacherous road to Jerusalem where the disciples have been now told three times that the Son of Man being Jesus, once we get there, is going to be captured, is going to be tortured, is going to be killed because the religious leaders are blind to who Jesus really is and have made their hearts hard toward him. Verse 46, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now, I don't know know about you, but I've always been like, why was this blind beggar named? Like, not that I had anything about blind beggars, but if you look at Mark, all of Jesus' healings, all of the times he runs into people, it's a blind man, it's a sick woman, it's a lame, you know, lame person, whatever. The only other kind of that was sort of named was Jairus' daughter. And even the daughter wasn't named, it was Jairus the father, right? So why Bartimaeus? Why is he named here? I want to point out it's similar to chapter 5 in that this blind beggar, his name literally is son of Timaeus. So it's almost kind of redundant. So bar means son of. Timaeus would have been father or family name. So his name is literally like son of Timaeus. He was son of Timaeus, right? So here's a couple of thoughts on why this name might have been memorable. First, often people are named for historical significance. Okay, so instead of just saying like the blind man, the, the lame beggar, whatever, how would you find that historically? How would you back that up? How would you just look for someone that they were dime a dozen, right? But this, you could maybe look up a name. You could look up Timaeus. You could look up a family lineage, right? There's some historical stuff. There's not a ton on him, so that wasn't as helpful. But second, this is the last recorded miracle, of course, minus the resurrection, um, of Jesus in Mark. So it could have been memorable here that this is kind of the last time they remember someone being healed in this way. Third, there's a heightened awareness that they are all on this path now to Jerusalem. They were afraid, right? It heightens the senses. You kind of remember stuff more. And lastly, literarily, for Mark to use a blind beggar as a juxtaposition against the all-seeing religious leaders they're about to encounter who are truly the blind ones here. Verse 47, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Interesting, his name is son of Timaeus right? And that is what his name literally means, but he cries out, say with me, cries out Jesus, which is from Yeshua, which literally means to deliver or rescue, okay? But then he translates that more to like his name, recognizing Yeshua as the Christ who has come to save, as the ancient Jews would have known it, that was the son of David. 
Interesting, he's translating it here in himself. This is the one that has come from the line of David that we've been waiting for for centuries. Right here, this blind beggar recognizes what it's taken 10 chapters of Mark and a few years for them, and will take the next six to unfold who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Who's Jesus? The son of David, otherwise known as the Christ. What is he going to do? He's come to deliver and rescue. He's Yeshua. Boom, this blind beggar has more realization than any of the religious leaders and potentially most of the disciples who have been told this point blank for a while now. So Jesus stops and calls for this blind beggar, which has, it was an incredible common sight, but he calls him to come to him. Verse 50, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. We're told this is a blind beggar, right? Money and food are this man's gospel. Apparently, he's never gotten outside of the city gates here, but here's the next step in this man's journey. It's not more money. It's not asking for food or shelter or status. It's what the, truly the issue is, the blindness, right? That's what he wants to recover. We could, he could have assumed Jesus and the disciples, and apparently they had a great crowd. They had money, but instead he asked to recover his sight. Verse 52, and Jesus said, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Blind Bart recognized who Jesus was. He saw what Jesus was going to do, was made new by Jesus, and then this is the final step for Bartimaeus. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Like blind Bartimaeus just preached to us the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who saves, Yeshua, the Christ, son of David, has come to deliver his people, healing, giving sight to the blind and to all who believe and follow him. No one is more fitting to preach this than a blind beggar along the way who encounters Jesus and now is a seeing follower on the way. And I want to end with this and stay with me. I think it's incredible what Mark has connected here. Mark brings up son of David. Okay, it's literally the only time this phrase is used in Mark is right here. This phrase, son of David. We see son of man a lot, but son of David. Okay, now what it connected with me, and if you stay with me, this is a connection, is this legendary story that I want to briefly end with of David's first act when he is anointed king of Israel. Okay, way back in the Old Testament, God had given his people a charge to enter into the land he had given them and to establish his kingdom-like values upon the land, driving out those who oppose the way of God, okay? For about 400 years, they did this. However, there was one area that was kept from them. <coughs> Excuse me. They could not drive out the inhabitants of this area. These people were known as the Jebusites, and the area they controlled is what would come to be known as Jerusalem. Okay? So this was a great city. It was easily defendable. As David's first act as king of Israel, this is in 2 Samuel, he marches against Jerusalem. He says, no, this, is, this cannot persist. We're going to take back this city. Israel hasn't won against the city for 400 years. So the inhabitants are quite cocky. 2 Samuel 5, 6. And the king, being David, and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. 
Okay, you, we are so strong and you are so weak that even our blind and our lame could fight you off. David said, verse 8 of chapter 5, 2 Samuel, And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. It's like a Mission Impossible movie here. Right? His own men, he actually, they actually go and they sneak up through the water shafts into the city because no one thought they could go in there. And they defeated it. They totally ransacked the city from the inside out. Verse 9, And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David, a.k.a. Jerusalem. Okay, back to Mark 10. My favorite part of this whole chapter is the fact that Jesus, like picture the scene, he's stepping over the rubble of Jericho. Okay, the once great unpenetrable fortress that was shattered to the ground only because of God heading towards the great Jerusalem, once again kept from its rightful king, except this time the lame and the blind aren't keeping him out, but instead that is the army that Jesus is coming to establish his kingdom with. The beautiful irony here that the Pharisees are up in their lofty ivory towers full of self-righteousness, those are the ones that will be brought down by the lowly, the gentle, the unclean, the lame, and the blind. This is who God chooses for his kingdom. The upside-down kingdom where the lame and the blind are the conquering heroes, where the lion is slain like a lamb. This is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we'll see next week how he is about to triumphantly enter into his city and establish what it means to follow him. And with that context of David have not being able to go against it because the lion and the blind, and now Jesus has that as his army, I think makes it richer. And I want to end with this. If you believe in Jesus today, that he is the Christ, that he is God in the flesh who came to lay down his life for you, to bring you real life, to show you, to show us his beauty and the life that we are made for, this requires the ultimate humility, to submit to him as king. It's not just accepting the most amazing gift of his love and new life he has brought, but it's surrendering to lay down our lives and ways of self-sufficiency that our world glorifies. Jesus' ways are upside down to this world and what often feels natural to us. And I just want to end going back to Mark 10, verse 15, which I think is the crux of it. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The words today for us is trust, dependence, innocence, awe, and wonder. Where the last are first, the first are last, where the greatest serve others. And if we believe and we can say, Jesus, you are the Christ, and as we respond this morning, let us say, Lord, I'm just beginning to know who you are. Show me more of you and your ways so that I may walk in them. And even if you don't believe this morning, if you're like, I don't know about this stuff. It sounds crazy. That's the same prayer. Lord, reveal yourself to me. Show me who you are through your word, through revelation, through the spirit. Show me who you are. I want to believe. Help my unbelief. Let's respond. I'm going to pray. You know how we respond in singing and praying, and giving, and remembering what Christ has done on the cross for our sins, that he died, he took that sinner's death for us, so that it could be covered in grace, so that when we go to Christ, there's nothing you have to do but to surrender, surrender to the ultimate King, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray, let's go and respond.